Welcome to Bird's Eye View, the podcast that celebrates and discusses books, stories, writing and writers. I'm your host, Math Bird, writer and Welsh borderlands dweller. In each episode, I'll explore some of my books and stories, the books and stories I love to read and the writers who write them, sharing my take on their themes, narratives, beginnings, endings and everything else in between. Hello, and a warm welcome to the Bird's Eye View of Books podcast. Today we're embarking on a literary journey to the Funshire Lowlands in the far corner of North East Wales. This area, rich in history and natural beauty, has inspired a host of writers. However, for this episode, we're focusing on the short story collections of three Flintshire-born writers, Glenda Began, G. Williams and me. Math Bird. We'll discover that the stories contained within the selected collections are more than just tales. They're windows into the soul of Flintshire, offering us insights into the region's history and the intricate tapestry of social, geographical and the cultural borders that define it. We'll delve into narratives that traverse the Cluidon Range, the Greenfield Valley, the Chester Borderlands, the Saltney Marshes, and of course, the D-Estuary. Stories that reveal the complexities of life in this part of Wales. Each collection serving as a mosaic, piecing together the vibrant life and legacy of the Flintshire Lowlands. Whether you're a long-time lover of Welsh literature, or new to the wonders of this region's storytelling, Today's episode promises to be a captivating journey. So, grab your favourite hot beverage, find a cosy spot, and let's travel together through the pages of some of Finch's finest short stories. The D Estuary which separates the Flintshire Lowlands from northwest England, often plays an important role in stories in or centred around the northeast region of Wales. Not only is it a significant landmark, but it acts as both a symbolic and geographical border. One of the defining characteristics of borders is that they make distinctions between them and us. However, in relation to Flintshire, as with lots of borderlands across many regions, the them and us are slightly more complex. Such themes are common throughout the work of Flintshire-born writer Glenda Began. Began was born in Rithlin in 1948, which, up until 1996, was still part of Flintshire. In her short story collections such as The Meddler Tree, Changes and Dreams, and more recently, the great master of ecstasy. Began uses notions of family and re-evaluation to be more explicit in her references to the county. She explores it by skillfully interweaving Flinch's rural and mythical landscapes with the past and the present to explore regional and moral borders with notions of personal and national identity. A number of these themes are present in her short story, Green Eggs and Larches. 
set in the 1950s and written from the viewpoint of an unnamed child protagonist, the story tells of a girl's visit to her Aunt Ellie's cottage in rural Flintshire. The child lives in an urban district near the town, in their house in Pretoria Terrace, with only a thin strip at the back for a garden. A sharp contrast when compared to her aunt's cottage, which has so much space and light. The child travels to her aunt's by bus, accompanied by her mother. Began uses the journey to skillfully blend in the landscape, using the diestry to highlight the child's mindset and foreshadow future events. Looking down was a good feeling. All the sandbanks in the estuary, the treacherous quicks and whirlpools, looked small and tame. The water around them, milky or palest green, like an opal. It was a trick of distance and light. And although not explicitly named, for those with any internal knowledge of the region, we are given glimpses of the town of Hollywell, where the girl and her mother wait for their connecting bus. To pass the time, they went to the milk bar, on the corner opposite the bus station. There was a pub on the other corner, the volunteer. A disreputable place, ma'am said with pillars and a kind of veranda outside where teddy boys stood. During their visit, the girl is asked by her aunt to go to a nearby farm at Gladys to fetch her some green eggs. Curious and excited by the prospect, the girl eagerly agrees. From here on, the darkness of the story unfolds, as do the subtle hints that reveal its place. After collecting six eggs from Mrs. Ben Davis, the old woman invites the girl to explore the farm and see if she can find some more. The girl eventually finds some in the hayloft, a scene that also uses a local newspaper to keep the story rooted to Flincher. One was warm still. She had a basket to collect them in, a square basket lined with crumpled sheets of the Flincher Herald. And as she was coming down from the loft, backwards and carefully on the ladder, Idwell appeared and held the ladder firm for her. From that moment on, every time the girl visits her aunt, she is sent to fetch green eggs, assisted by Mrs. Davis's grown-up son, Idwell. He would always ask her to sit in the hay with him, so she would. She wasn't sure she really liked what he did, but he was kind. He must be. Finding eggs for her always, and anyway, he'd said it was their secret. This use of nature to explore the loss of innocence and expose the darker, crueler aspects of human nature is a common theme throughout Beacon's work and is used to great effect in some of her earlier stories, such as The Sea Book and the sadist. As with many writers from North East Wales, Began is a border writer, and as a result has an ingrained sensitivity to social and geographical contrasts. This is apparent throughout many of her stories. Her characters constantly pass through real and imagined places, re-evaluating their lives and their sense of place whilst travelling between Chester, Shotton, Rill and Bangor. England is a constant presence, 
the Wirral Shore sharply visible, whereas sometimes it just lingers in the background, posing no threat, the de-estuary, a grey, wrinkled calm. Began consciously positions Flintshire as a place with its own distinctive character. She does this by exploring its cultural duality, questioning what it is to belong by exploring both English and Welsh cultural identities. Such themes are explored in the titled story of her collection, The Great Master of Ecstasy. Originally, The Great Master of Ecstasy was one of the winning stories in the 1999 Rhys Davis short story competition. And for this collection, it has been extended into a longer piece and spread over 14 short chapters. An unnamed female protagonist who, once destitute and homeless, who was rescued and subsequently nursed back to health by local urban shaman Kieran Wood, tells the story for the most part. The young woman looks up to Kieran. She admires his skills of painting and drawing, is in awe of his calm and poise, and his ability to meditate and be wherever he wants to be. Others in the community also recognise Kieran's shamanic abilities. They come to him for advice in the room he hires at the yoga centre. Then, one day, Kieran is attacked outside the yoga centre. He is left in a coma and subsequently dies. The story continues by interweaving the past and the present. We get more of an insight into Kieran's life as the young woman tries to unravel her mentor's personal history. We learn that Kieran was born in Liverpool. When he was nine years old, Kieran's alcoholic mother was found dead at the bottom of the stairs. Kieran was adopted by his uncle Bryn and began a new life with his uncle's family on their farm in Flintshire. It is through Kieran's and his uncle's relationship with the land that Began explores the question of what it is to belong. She demonstrates how language and place of birth are not the only factors in determining our sense of national identity. Highlighting the tenuous divides of Flinch's geographical and cultural borders. Bryn has farmed the land all his life. But unlike his urbanised nephew and his sister before him, he is unable to connect with the land. He envies this connection with the land that he couldn't even begin to imagine. Kieran Walsh, who subsequently reinvents himself into the shamanic Kieran Wood, inherits his mother's gifts. He shares a supernatural insight into the land's past, interacting with nature through their spirit guide, the mysterious Holly King. The young woman visits Kieran's family and discovers more about his past and the supernatural experiences that made him leave and brought him close to madness. Began uses these interactions to explore the many facets of regional identity, as seen through Mary, Kieran's cousin, when she relates the history of local landmark Craig Ruth. They just took the name for granted. This is a very anglised area, see, though less so now, with Welsh schools and everything. That's made a big difference. What I mean is, it's always been borderland historically. Offers dyke, what's dyke, all that. So it's least as much Saxon as Welsh. With a name like Craig Ruth, you're reminded 
It's a kind of language fusion. It's wolf rock, really. Sort of winglish. This Welshness of the Flintshire variety is explored throughout the anthology in stories such as Birth of an Oxbow. However, what makes The Great Master of Ecstasy slightly more effective is that it uses the genres of fantasy and magical realism to explore internal conflicts of identity. It also gives voice to the outsiders looking in, people from the other side who have crossed over the border. This idea is captured skillfully in the closing paragraphs of the story, where Bryn recalls Kieran's arrival at the farm. Do you know what that water is down there? Bryn asked him. Kieran shook his head. That's the River Dee, that is. The estuary where it runs out to the sea. And that land on the other side. Do you know what that is? Is it England? Well, yes, it's part of England. It's called the Wirral. And what's the river there? The Mersey, said Kieran. And what's on the other side of the Mersey? Liverpool. So where you come from isn't far away, is it? I live here now, though, said Kieran. The dichotomy of what it means to be in and out of place is also explored by Flincher-born writer G. Williams in her short story collection Magic and Other Deceptions. Placed before the first story is a small section entitled You Are Here. Williams uses it as a means to place her region and communicate to the reader its history, geography and its nuances of dialect and identity distinctive cultural characteristics which are also designed to provide us with an authentic sense of place. Flintshire is a Brigadoon county. Now you see it, now you don't. No wonder most people can't place the area on the map. I was born in it, but before I left school it had disappeared, being swallowed up by greater Cluid. Then, a couple of years ago, out it pops. Basically, it is still a stretched, leanish strip of land running along one bank of the Dee. From ditch-dredging, boat-building, cattle-rending Saltney, through spit-on-your-hands Shotton and chemical flint, and on to the peeling, painted tars of Salacra and Prostatin. The road invites you to keep going, till you hit the real Wales. It must be the only district in Britain whose unofficial capital, Chester, is in another country. Williams, like Began, wants to affirm its distinctive characteristics, providing a sense of place by exploring its accent, geography, local history and dual identity. She does this through a mix of humour and acute observation. Williams's comedic skills are evident throughout the collection, and as a result, they have the potential to appeal to a wider audience and place Flintshire a little further in the public imagination. There are stories such as Waste Flesh, where photography student Vinnie takes photographs of shot and steelworks and the North East Wales coalfield, exposing his father's infidelity in the process. In Gyroscope, council tenant Caris searches the house for her unemployed husband's recent bet winnings. Through the story's dialogue, Williams also acknowledges and explores the region's accents. Williams' strengths lie in her ability to provide a sense of place through its towns, industrial parks and council estates. 
places and people edging on the river's border, their lives as varied as the local history. This is best demonstrated in her Welsh Book of the Year shortlisted short story collection, Blood, etc. The collection lends its title from the opening story, which is told from the viewpoint of 30-something stay-at-home dad, Alan. Alan spends his day looking after his three-year-old son, Charlie, while his wife, Holly, manages a furniture factory on the outskirts of Chester. All three live at the family home, the aptly named Carousel, a 1930s townhouse situated at a crossroads along the old Wrexham Road. We discover that Alan's life is also at a crossroads. Through the morning and evening exchanges between Alan and his wife, we witness the distancing and deterioration of their relationship. Alan begins to question his newfound domesticity. He misses the city, is unable to connect with the locals, and the trees in the redundant orchard make him cranky with their sluggard ways. Alan befriends a young woman, Mel, and through their brief exchanges, Williams provides us with an insight into Alan's growing sense of isolation and Flinch's regional accent. It gave him a thrill, that voice. Not because it was anything special. Not because of its light, girly tone and easy half-Welsh, half-English border accent. But because it was not the voice of a three-year-old boy. The only other, apart from his own. He heard all day. At the end of the story, Mel's horse is hit by a car and is subsequently put down. When relating the scene to his wife, Alan tells her, Terrible pain it must have been. Blood, etc. everywhere. Sorry, is this too much detail or something? This blood, etc. is a theme that runs throughout the collection. Not only blood in a literal sense, but blood in terms of family, relatives, places and people, and the ties that bind us. The detail is revealed through Flinch's rural and urban landscapes, accents and identity, juxtaposed with personal and local history. This is best illustrated in the story and the anthology's tour de force, Morva. The story is told from the viewpoint of an unnamed physician who has recently moved from London to take up practice in Saltney, a small Flincher village to the west of Chester. From the outset, Williams confirms the story's location. The traffic out on the Chester Road passed with an accompanying persistent hiss. The wettest year on record for Flincher. No, no longer for Flincher anymore for the whole of North Wales. We get a sense of place through the protagonist exchanges with his Italian wife, Rosa. He tells her, the rain's what forms the landscape. We see how these landscapes have made a lasting impression on him. I've always had this thing about it. Hated it when mum and dad moved away. I never want to live far from the sea again. The Saltney Marsh and the Diestri. The Welsh call it Morva. It defeated the Romans. The doctor finds the village of his birth changed, where the terraces and council-owned semis are now circled by modern villas. The region's social contrasts are apparent throughout. 
the grander townhouses juxtaposed against the red brick terraces of North Street and their multi-troublesome residents. It is at North Street where the doctor is called to a crime scene, to the murder of a young woman, Mary Talbot, where he assists the police in diagnosing the cause of death. Williams's darker stories are often her most successful. Morifer is no exception. Through a seamless mix of crime and literary genres, she skillfully interweaves moral, social and geographical borders. Morifer, as much as it is a story of borders and social contrasts, is also a chronological record of a specific place, providing a sense of place by detailing the village's development, its stories and local history. Williams manages this by exploring the area through the doctor's research of a local painting. Purchased from a Sunday market, Star of Bethlehem is an artist recollection of a shepherd's cottage which once stood at the end of what is now North Street, Saltney Ferry. Through his findings, we learn that a couple of hundred years ago, Saltney had not been there because there was no there. We discover that the wilderness was first incised by Nathaniel Kindley's Saltney Cut. How parts of the River Dee were captured and the pastoral replaced by the profitable. And our whole village, with over 2,000 people, are now buoyed up on a barely wrung out sponge. As the main protagonist keeps reminding us, the name for Earth should be Ocean. The phrase is used to explore multiple themes. On one level, it reflects the protagonist's obsession with the physicality of his hometown. He perceives it as being the main catalyst for both his exile and return, showing how geography plays a pivotal role in determining how we live. However, he also uses it as a metaphor to express his growing feelings of instability as he witnesses life and his own relationships starting to deliquesce, as expressed through Mary Talbot's death and his wife's affair with a young police officer. The influence of local geographical landmarks plays a central role in my own short story collection, Histories of the Dead and Other Stories. Not only does the Deestry physically divide Flintshire from England, but it also marks it as a marginal space, a geographical border that can make people feel both culturally in and out of place, as is the case in the short story Billy Star. Billy Star is narrated by its teenage protagonist, Scott. The story is set in the scorching summer of 1976 and begins with Scott and his father having to leave their Liverpool home after being evicted. Scott's mother has recently left to start a new life with another man. So Scott and his father go to live with Scott's grandmother in his father's hometown along the Flintshire Lowlands near the Deestry. Scott longs to return to Liverpool. He has a strained relationship with his grandmother. He misses his mother deeply and he spends hours staring across the estuary at the faint outline of the sandstone outcrops that mark the distant English shoreline. Scott does not perceive the sands and waters of the Deestry as just a landscape, 
he is not detached from it. For him, it is a lived and felt place, a place that provides both reflection and a means to articulate his feelings about his current predicament and surroundings. The effect of this is twofold. Geographically, the deestry confirms that Flintshire is in Wales, and therefore markedly Welsh, and different from the urban Liverpudlian city he knows and loves. It is also on the periphery, with regional characteristics such as accents and geography that are more recognisably English than any of Scott's perceived notions of Welsh identity. Not only does the story Billy Starr explore how this geographical border makes Scott feel both culturally and personally in and out of place, it also uses the deestry, its sands and its body of water to express how Scott's predicament, relationships and sense of self are caught in an in-between place, as shown in the following extract. I did as Billy said, not really knowing where to go. I followed the coastal path, Luke dragging his heels behind me. He kept mumbling and looking over his shoulder. I just ignored him and started walking faster, stopping when I reached the gate. While I waited for him to catch up, it felt strange standing there. Stretches of fields on my left and the blue-grey river on my right. I had no attachment to the place. I felt lost. Those wide, open spaces giving me the saddest feeling. As the story develops, Scott makes friends with a boy his age called Luke and his older sister Jodie. As the weeks drag on, they spend their mornings in a sleazy cafe called The Ritz, and then in the afternoon they stroll down to the estuary, watching the ebb and flow of the tide and skimming stones across the sands. They soon get bored of it, and Scott feels that those long, slow weeks will never end. Then his father's younger brother, Billy, comes home, making it a summer the whole town will remember. What follows is a coming-of-age story about how the people we respect and admire aren't always what they pretend to be. It's a poignant tale, where the deestry is inextricably linked to its characters, themes, narrative and tragic ending. Many of the stories in the Histories of the Dead anthology explore the Flintshire Lowlands through the literary crime genre. By asking what it means to be from the Flintshire Lowlands and the places contained within it, such as Hollywood and the Greenfield Valley, it tries to raise awareness of its local history, geography, cultural identity and relationship with the Welsh language and explore notions of belonging and place. The town of Hollywood, Trefunnel and the Greenfield Valley, Dovrin Mice Glass have played a pivotal role in defining the Flintshire Lowlands' sense of place and influencing perceived notions of its cultural identity. However, it wasn't until the 18th century that Hollywood and the Greenfield Valley became truly prosperous. The new industrial machines needed power, and with water being the most cost-effective and reliable option, the Greenfield Valley was the ideal choice and brought great prosperity to the area 
until its eventual decline in the late 19th century. The collection's eponymous story, Histories of the Dead, is narrated by its main protagonist, 30-something garage mechanic Jace. Jace's best friend Stevie has recently died, and Jace's reflections on his friendship with Stevie throughout the years introduce the reader to the Greenfield Valley, and in doing so, demonstrate how, like most places, it is shaped by its local, cultural, and social history. From Jace's perspective, gaining more knowledge of such histories enables him to either detach from it or form a closer bond, and broadening his understanding of what it means to be in and out of place. Moreover, he might even acquire a greater sense of place. However, this also has its pitfalls. As Jace discovers, the recorded histories of a given place are both particular and selective, and as a result, influence how we perceive it, as shown in the following extract. As I drive away from Barry's garage, I see Geordie on the well hill. He's dressed in black. A crop of grey curls covers his head. My short, stocky friend is unmistakable. I pull up alongside him, wind down the window. Where are you off to? I ask, already knowing the answer. Geordie grins. Down the valley, for a smoke. Hop in. I'll take you down the hill. I drive past the holy well of St. Winifred's. It's over 800 years old and they still come here to redeem themselves. I tried that once. Drunk as hell. Jumped right into the pool. Even begged God for forgiveness. He didn't answer me though. No. All he gave me was a cold. I park up by the well's entrance. How far are you going, I ask. Geordie shrugs. Probably to the flour mill pool. I mulled over. You know, Geordie, I haven't been there for years. Think I'll join you. Just under two miles long, the Greenfield Valley was prosperous in its day. Shamefully, that's all I know. Geordie's the man with the degree. He knows its history. We follow the path through the woods. When was that built? I ask, pointing to the ruins of an old factory. Geordie shrugs. Don't know the exact date. Probably mid to late 18th century. What did it make? Stuff from copper, you know, wire and bolts. We walk the rest of the way in silence, and I try to imagine how this place used to look. But all I can see are the ghosts. I catch glimpses of them. Two teenage boys chasing each other through the trees. Finally, we reach the pond. The swans are out, gliding across the water. We hunker down among the reeds and Geordie lights up a joint. He draws on it three times, then offers me a toke. Just a small one, I say and make some excuse about driving. I take a deep drag, holding the smoke inside my chest. Geordie shakes his head. Ah, <sighs> poor Stevie. I nod, 
keeping my eyes closed while I exhale. What did this pool used to be? I say, desperate to change the subject. A reservoir to power the old mill. Doesn't seem possible. Well, it was. That old spring pumped 4,000 gallons of water a minute. I stare at him for a moment. This place must have been something back then. Jody shrugs. I suppose, if you believe everything you read in books. What do you mean? We only get to see one side of it, don't we? I bet for most, this was just a place they worked, another rubbish job. But ten times worse, I bet. Jordy nods. Too right. Especially for those poor souls in the factory. Nah, we'll never know the real story. What makes you so sure? Jordy smiles. Because, my friend, history is never written by the dead. This revelation enables both Jace and the reader to acquire a deeper understanding of the Greenfield Valley. And to paraphrase Tim Creswell from his book Place, demonstrates, for the most part, places of memory serve to commemorate the winners of history, achieved to the exclusion of some other. This works on multiple levels throughout the story. And as the events that led to Stevie's death are uncovered and avenged, right up until the ending's startling reveal, we are left with the notion that places we know have multiple histories, some known, others forgotten. But each new insight can never be unlearned and influences both our feeling and understanding of them. Sadly, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining me on this fascinating journey through the short stories of Flintshire and North East Wales. I truly hope you found these stories and the places and people they explore as enthralling and captivating as I do. And before we part ways, I'd like to remind you about my own short story collection, Histories of the Dead and Other Stories. If these stories have captured your imagination, I encourage you to grab a copy. It's available at all the usual places, in print or as an e-book. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider showing your support. A rating or review on your preferred podcast platform helps to reach more listeners. Also, don't forget to head over to mathbird.substack.com and leave a comment. I am always eager to engage with listeners and discuss the themes, ideas and content explored in each podcast. So, until next time, keep turning the pages and exploring the stories that connect us all. I'm Math Bird, and this has been the Bird's Eye View of Books podcast. Take care and happy reading. Bird's Eye View of Books podcast was written and presented by me, Math Bird, and is a McSnowell's Books production.